All right, uh, let's go to Acts chapter 23. Uh, next week, I will be out of town, and uh, Jared will be preaching Acts chapter 24, so make sure you guys are here ready to learn from the best of the best. But uh, today, we are continuing in the historical record of Paul. Uh, this kind of reminds us that Christianity doesn't always have revival or riots. Sometimes it can just be just everyday life, kind of normal stuff going on. Now, for him... The, the normal thing going on for him now is he's going to be in jail and he's going to be sent from one place to another, and that, that definitely can be stressful. But there's no real, like, ups and downs, you know, in a sense. There's really just this kind of pathway that he has to take as he uh, fights for his freedom and he tells his story. And what we can be reminded of uh, through this, this journey of Paul is that sometimes, you know, life will be like a long walk. You know, it's not always going to feel like a sprint and it's not always going to feel like an MMA fight. OK, uh, sometimes it's just going to feel like you're on a long journey. You're just going through seasons and, and you'll look back on those journeys, uh, look back on that season, look back on those places you've been and you'll see how far God has taken you, all that he's done in your life. But don't lose sight of Christ in, in the situation and become bored. Boredom is, uh, is a seat to a lot of uh, sinful emotions. And so you don't want to allow yourself to be bored. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Stay busy in the things of God. As a matter of fact, Paul, I believe, told Timothy, was it 2 Timothy, bring me the books, bring me my parchments. Uh, he wanted to learn and continue to grow as he was even in jail. As we find out, as he ends up getting into Rome, he starts meeting with the brothers there. He has kind of a jailhouse ministry. They kind of put him on house arrest, so it's not as um, as um, ball and chain as he had been before in different places. So he has a little bit more freedom, and there's actually even a possibility that he took a fourth missionary journey uh, around that area. They let him do such a thing until Nero beheaded him. And so I, I, I'm really trying to give you this perspective of it because I don't want us to be bored with reading about Paul's life. So don't be bored with his life. Don't be bored with your life. See the good that God is doing in the midst of it. And if you do suffer, and, and we don't want to overlook that, Paul is suffering for Christ. It would be better for him to be free instead of going before courts and being in jail or at least locked up in the barracks at this point, so he's not really being treated as a prisoner. He's just more or less being confined uh, for his safety. But nonetheless, he's suffering for Jesus. And so if you do suffer for Jesus, this is another thing they talk about, uh, about, as I've read about the suffering. Suffering is not always a quick martyrdom. Sometimes it is a slow drip, a slow drip of persecution. It's just drip, drip. Drip, you know, and I was uh, listening to uh, some of the stories about those who were in POW camps during Vietnam, or it might have been World War II, I can't remember, but it was the ones they said that always said next uh, Christmas will be out, next uh, summer will be out. Those were the ones who really had their highs and lows because they'd be disappointed when next Christmas they weren't out. But at the same time, the one who says we'll never get out, that one would die of uh, loneliness and try to take their own life. So the one who says, well, you know, everything's going to be good, just, just, you know, smile, it's okay, that guy wouldn't do very well. And then the one who just folds up and says, we're not going to make it, wouldn't do well. The ones who would do well is to say one day at a time. One day at a time, one day at a time. I'm taking this one day at a time. And, and when I heard with the Christian persecution, one day at a time, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to serve Jesus, life or by death, one day at a time. And those people could endure through it. And if you think about that, that's what the Bible says. Of course, we're supposed to be optimistic. But it says, do not worry about tomorrow. So don't put a false hope in tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow brings. Say, the Lord wills will do such and such. And that's why still to this day we should say, if the Lord wills while we're making our plans. So today in the Pentecostal handbook, we learn how God's hand was upon Paul and kept him safe so that he could reach Rome, which was the promise God had given him, despite what some of his friends and fellow elders wanted to prevent him from doing. He's going to reach Rome and uh, spread the Christian message effectively through the Roman Empire. Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, let's figure out where we are. 
Paul's been arrested in Jerusalem. They tried to uh, beat him and do all kinds of harmful things to him. Uh, then they, he gets rescued by the Roman soldiers. Uh, they find out uh, the Roman soldiers are about ready to punish him just to make the Jews happy. They find out he's a Roman uh, citizen. You can't do that. So then they put him in the barracks to keep him safe. They bring a few of the accusers uh, there. Nothing's really being settled. So now they bring him before the Sanhedrin. And he says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Right here we see, once again, it's not the Calvinistic handbook. This is the Armenian handbook that says he had a part to play. Though he got knocked off of his horse, that wasn't his choice. Many are called. His calling was getting knocked off the horse, but few are chosen. And what's the difference between the many called and many chosen? How you respond to the calling. How they would respond to the call of the Roman Empire to recruit soldiers would depend on whether or not they would get chosen to be a Roman soldier. That was the example there. So as the Roman soldiers would go from um, town to town, they would make the call, all men, you know, 16 years and up or 18 years and up, come meet us in the field. The day of tryouts is here. And everybody wanted to be a Roman soldier. That was what they wanted to be. They could have the adventures. They could get the money. They would get land, all of these things. So men Many were called, but at the end of the day, who were chosen? You're a Roman soldier. You're coming with us. You're coming with us. We're the ones that responded to the calling and did what they were supposed to do. And generally, those were ones who had preparation beforehand, those who knew that they were coming for the call. They lived in a state of readiness. Whenever the, the, the soldiers come, they have the tryouts. I want to be ready. And so the idea is God gives us all a call and that we are to receive it and make ourselves ready to have it fulfilled in our lives. So Paul says here, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all conscience, in all good conscience to this day. So he was faithful to God. He was faithful. And that's, and even though faith may be a gift that God gives us, just like life's a gift that God gives us, it's up to you to use it for God. You can use your faith and put it in a rock 10 point some billion years ago that uh, went from the goo through the zoo to you, and then your great, 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 great grandfather was a rock. Okay, you can actually believe that, put faith in that, or you can have faith in God saying, uh, let there be light, and bang, it happened. So everyone's going to have faith in some Everybody has a foundational belief, okay? Everybody's going towards something in life, and this is what he said I have gone towards. I have fulfilled my duty. He saw it was his duty. So a lot of times, even in Bible college, you can see what you're doing as like an assignment from this school or a professor or Metro Praise Church has made these requirements, but you have to see the higher view. The higher view is it's a duty from God. Like I, like, like, I look back on this, and I can name names, and Jared actually knows both of these names now uh, over my past. But my biggest fear when I was in Bible college um, and I dropped out, and as you guys hear about it in the 201 because of the, the pride that I had, and I was confronted, and they said, either you repent or you got to go. And I said, okay, I'll just go in that, in that first quarter. My, my biggest fear was that I would return back to the world and go back into sin. But as I have now served the Lord, that's actually probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have been what would have happened. I think the devil could have used that, who knows. But now I look back, and I, in and, and, and the perspective of the people that I know now, I know people that are my age that have still not graduated from Bible college. They're in the rat race. They start, they stop. They go on long journeys of sin. Come on, Jared, you know at least uh, both of these that I'm thinking of right now. And I think about it like that could have been me. Maybe not backslidden, but when I got discouraged because of my calling at Bible college, went and got a job, went and did something, and then I get so busy in life, I forget about it, but I still go to church. And then after a while, maybe I feel convicted. I try to start it up again, but now I've got more baggage, so it's harder to start up. And literally, literally right now, I can name a name and say he is now starting over as an intern, an intern at his ministry, and I'm thinking, to myself, he is only a few years younger than myself. And I'm like, that could have been me. That could have been me. That would have been the biggest thing I would have missed. Not just going to hell. Well, I mean, obviously going to hell would have been the biggest thing. But once again, it's like, would I turn my back on God when I dropped out of Bible couch? Probably not, though we never know how deception works. But that now would have been my biggest fear. Like, dude, just wasting my life. 
And I look at these individuals, they're not married, they have no kids. All of those years I would have wasted. Why? Because I would have been with the girls at the club and at, you know, the nightlife or wherever I could find a live-in relationship. You know, you get close to them for a few years and then when the times get rough, you don't like each other, you move on. And all those broken relationships, the broken soul. But you see here, Paul says, I fulfilled my duty to God. He saw it as a duty to God to go around and preach the gospel. And he said he did it in all good conscience. And I think about this often, that the conscience God has given me. And I can't speak to you and your conscience because I don't know it. I know you have one. I know you're not a humanoid. I know you're not snatched by angel, uh, uh, aliens last night, and today you're uh, the body of an, uh, of an alien. I, I know you're a real human person. So you must have a conscience because the Bible says you do. But I can tell you that my conscience is very sensitive to the Lord. And as I stay in prayer in the Word, it stays sharp. But as I move away from prayer and the Word, or I lose the desire for those things, and I only do it mechanically out of religion, I notice that my conscience becomes dull. It's not good. I don't have a clear conscience. I have a grieved conscience or a dull conscience. And then what do people do when they have a dull or grieved conscience? They tell themselves lies to soothe the conviction or to soothe their numbness. Maybe I'm not supposed to be as close to God as I was last year. Maybe that's why I feel so dull. Maybe it's not really always supposed to be like that. So they give themselves an excuse or they lie to themselves and say, well, maybe, you know what, I'm supposed to live with this dual nature of a sinner and a saint, and that's just the way it's going to be. And then they start lying to themselves. But Paul said, in all good conscience. So he wasn't lying to himself when he said he had fulfilled God's call. He wasn't lying to himself when he said that I am free from the blood of all men, as he said to the Ephesian elders. Can you say that today? Can you say what Paul has said? That you have up into this point, up into this day, you have fulfilled your duty to God. Not just to Metro Praise, not just to SUM, not just to your spouse or to your ministries, but can you say up until this day, right now if I was to meet heaven, he would, uh, if I were to go to heaven and meet Jesus, he would say, yes, you fulfilled your duty. If you have not, repent and set your path straight right now. And could you say right now, in all good conscience, I am serving God. There is nothing in my conscience that I am pushing down, dulling down, lying to myself about. I am in good conscience with God. Whether it's how I spend my money, in my sexuality, you know, just like we learned yesterday, sexual, in, in my sexuality, in my morality, how I live day-to-day -day life, and in my finances. Am I sexually immoral? Am I impure? Or am I greedy? Look at your heart and be honest. And your words, then, and as the Bible says there in Ephesians 5, look at your words. Are they obscene? Are they coarse? Or are they thankful of thanksgiving? Or, you know, foolish, the Bible also says, to avoid those things. So that one little sentence there gives us a lot to think about. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. <laughs> Now, what in the world did he say that was worthy of being slapped? He didn't say anything. That's how angry these guys were. Now slap him. So he literally gets slapped right across the face. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So we could see the kind of way Paul thought about those things. It gives a little bit of Paul's personality there. Those who were standing near, Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. That's Exodus 22, 20, uh, verse 28. So was he wrong to rebuke the man? No, he was not wrong to rebuke the man. 
But he did not know his title, so in that situation, he wasn't supposed to rebuke the man judging him. He was to trust God in that situation that the man would do what's right. Now, when we look at John the Baptist, John the Baptist called Herod an adulterer. Uh, Jesus called the other Herod after that a fox. I don't believe it was the same Herod. It was the same Herod. Just double check. Let's make sure what Herod there is because there's so many Herods and I get those confused. Uh, But why were they doing that? Because they saw the man repeatedly in sin. At this point, he's giving the man the best, uh, he's thinking the best of him and he should not insult him or speak evil of him. But did the prophets rebuke the kings? Yes. So Exodus 22 verse 8 doesn't say we can't rebuke our kings or our leaders. It just says you can't speak evil, which would be speak falsely of them. And so he does not know that this man is doing evil as his heart would be. uh, So he can't rebuke him and, and call him a whitewashed tomb. But he can be upset with the act that was done against him because he did nothing wrong by the law which is the same law that he's judged by. So the problem was he called him a whitewashed tomb. He does not know that about him, but he simply should have said, you have no right to strike me. So there's just a little bit of nuance there, but just to understand it correctly, as we've talked about before, one place Jesus says, call nobody a fool, and another place Jesus is calling fools. Which one is right? Both. It's not either or, it's both and. Okay, it's the same thing here. Uh, You know, Jesus calls uh, Herod a fox. John the Baptist calls him an an, uh, idolater, I mean, excuse me, an adulterer. And then Paul here calls him a whitewashed tomb. Adulterer, fox, is okay to call leaders here. But over here, it's wrong to call him a whitewashed tomb. What's the situation there? It's the difference of the context. The context determines these things. The context will determine, even as we're talking about, what is obscenity. Jesus talked about, you know, whatever comes out of your heart, Uh, Whatever comes out of your mouth comes out of your heart, and then from those things, the good and bad. Well, uh, you know, you're not supposed to call people names and put them down, but Jesus called people a dog, whitewashed tombs and all that. Why was that? Because in the context, Jesus is using his words, though they could seem hurtful to the people, but he was using them descriptively to help them see behaviors, and he was wanting them to to see something beyond that, um, to see their actions, in a sense, and see if they were willing to listen to the message. Uh, and in one sense, look beyond themselves and hear the word of God. So he, car- he calls the Seraphonician woman a dog. He says, it's not right to give. She's asking him for a miracle. And, and he says, it's not right to give the, the dogs the children's bread. And she says, but even the dogs get the crumbs. Uh, you know, so he called her a dog in that sense, but he wanted to see, will you look beyond your cultural situation? Will you stop seeing yourself as the victim of racism and start seeing yourself as the victor? And I love that about Candace Owens and, and uh, Red Pill Black. She's got a great, uh, this voice right now to the African-American people standing up for yourself in morality and in these things, not seeing yourself the victim, especially in bad politics, beginning to, to see that you have so much opportunity. And I was just listening to her this morning. That's why it's on my mind. Was it the same Herod? Herod Antipas. Thank you, sir. And then also Jesus got slapped. Now, why is this important to know uh, about slapping here? is because they were slap happy? Is that the only reason we're supposed to know this? No, but this actually gives context to Jesus in the Beatitudes. If they slap you on one cheek, turn to them the other. Is that in the context of someone trying to beat you to kill you? No, that is someone religiously persecuting you that has authority over you. And so when you are being oppressed and you don't have the authority to stop the oppressor, let them know you can take the other cheek. How do I know that has to do with oppressed-oppressor relationships? Because it then says, if they ask you to go one mile, go with them too. That's talking about the Roman soldier. If they ask you for your coat, give them your shirt as well. That's, that's talking about the Roman soldier who could ask you to do things and seize your property. So the idea is... When you are oppressed and, and the oppressor is asking you to do things, don't at that time try to fight back and get your rights. But does that mean we can't uh, have a revolution? Does that mean that we cannot do like what the American Revolution did? No. And does that mean, uh, as C.S. Lewis said, that if you were watching a child get raped right in front of you, you wouldn't do anything? No. No. Because then you would be just as culpable of the evil 
of the person doing the raping because you've done nothing to stop it. And the Bible says, do unto others as you want done unto you. So if you were getting raped, would you want somebody to try to stop with all power and all resources possible? Yes. So then we, we have to then develop a different theory when it comes to war and government. And we get that also out of uh, what, Romans 12 or Romans 13. Thank you. Romans 13 says, now the Roman soldier carries the sword as a minister of the Lord. He's literally a deaconos. He is a servant of the Lord standing in that place to execute judgment on those who do wrong. So we take that uh, full view to understand what is just war and what is being persecuted and being oppressed and what our attitude should be. So uh, Jesus here gets slapped. It says, uh, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. When uh, This is uh, what they said. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. This is John 18, 20. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have, I always taught Excuse me. I always taught in synagogue or at the temple where all Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this how you is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Now, th this is something here, man. These guys always want to take up the cause for the high priest and slap somebody, okay? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Ananias sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we understand that the law <clears throat> teaches us in Exodus 22, 8, not to speak evil of our rulers, but I think now we have a way to understand that in context. Does everybody get that? The context is we don't speak evil of them as much as we give them the benefit of the doubt until they have shown themselves to do evil, and then we speak righteously to them, which is not evil. It's not evil to speak to someone who's an adulterer and call them an adulterer, as, as John the Baptist did. It's not wrong to say to someone who's acting like a fox, it's, that's, that's not evil to do that to them that they're acting like a fox, you know? Uh, so the, the Nicianity of the world is not Christianity. But in this context, Paul takes it back, doesn't say, I'm sorry necessarily. He just says, I didn't know who he was. So there we go. Now verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and they are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. And I love how Luke tells us who they are there because Luke's a good historian that he's knowing that many are written to, uh, this letter's going to be read by many Gentiles. And it might have been primarily written for Gentiles as a defense to Jesus or to the Gentile church primarily at this time. We just, we just don't know who he's exactly writing to. Tromepheus is the beloved one, right? Isn't that his name? No, Theophilus. Theophilus, the beloved one. Thank you. We don't know exactly who that is, but we know that's a Gentile name, okay? We know that's a Greek name. And so we see here that he's explaining that to us. Why is that important? Well, that's important if you're ever talking, once again, with the black Hebrew-Israelite movement or a Judaizing movement, because if we take their worldview as correct, that there were never any Gentiles, pagan people outside of the nation of Israel coming into Christ, why does the Bible take time in the Gospels and in Acts to explain things like this? Wouldn't the Jewish people already know the differences between Sadducees and Pharisees? They would already know. Wouldn't they also know the words of Aramaic? Why does uh, John have to say, and the other gospel writers say, Cephas, which means rock? Why do they have to explain these words? Or it says, Talakum, get up and rise. And it says, this means get up and rise. Why do the gospel writers interpret Aramaic for us? And why do they tell us Jewish historical facts? 
because it was also a Gentile church. So to have this idea that it was all Jewish and that this is the way God only is going to save the people of the Jewish people, these are little tidbits to show us it was a Gentile and Jewish congregation, and he needed to explain that to them. Now, if you want more detail on that, I got a great article here on Sadducees and Pharisees. But I think Luke does a great job here in verse 8 in telling us their main differences. Uh, I kind of see Sadducees like secular Jews, basically. They didn't really believe in anything spiritual. They believed once you die, it was over. So they were really more politically involved in their religion than anything else. I think they realized that, hey, we don't have much to gain uh, trying to go out here into the Roman Empire on our own. We might as well stick in the area we're at with the people we have. Uh, we don't really buy into this whole uh, religion thing too much. We're kind of like just the liberal believers, and we'll take just as little bit as we can to to uh, to be a Jew in a sense. You know, we'll take the most lowest standard possible. We believe in the God. We believe in these things that have happened in the past. But as of angels and spirits and life after death and judgment, no, all that there is is this life now. And so they were far out there. They weren't the righteous ones by any means. So once again, who would you rather hang out with 50 years before Jesus comes and 50 years before John the Baptist, the Pharisees or the Sadducees? You're going to want to hang out the Pharisees. So once again, the Pharisees are supposed to be the good guys because at, at one time or another, they were the good guys. And even people like Paul or those who uh, worked in the temple, what was his name? The guy who prayed night and day at the temple, Simeon. Yeah, there you go. And then Zechariah. They were all Pharisees, you know, uh, if, if, if they could choose between those two. Obviously, they're always going to, they're going to believe in spirits and all that because they're getting angelic visions and having prophecies given to them. So you would have wanted to be a Pharisee. You would have wanted to be like Paul in that sense. But of course, what, they, what had they did by that time that was so bad is they added a fence around the law. And that's how I want you guys to see their legalism. Just as I saw or heard a Jewish man tell me, they didn't have the intention to make people twice the sons of hell as they were, as Jesus said they became. What their intention was is we're going to guard the law, but it was a carnal desire. And then through that, they, they loved the power that that gave them. And then by doing that, it led them. They were deceived. They didn't know they were children of the devil, making people twice the sons of the devil as they were. But it deceived them and led them into a place of being that. And so if it can happen, happen to the Pharisees, it can happen to us. It can happen to anyone. How do you think the Roman Catholic Church developed? It wasn't like there was one day there wasn't a Roman Catholic Church, and the next day, here it is. That's why when you talk to historians, everybody's drawing lines at different parts. Some people draw the line at around um, uh, the Pope in uh, 500 AD. I think it was like Pope Benedict. Pope Gregory, thank you, who uh, declares himself the leader of the, the churches and that Rome is going to be the center. But then some people don't believe that it's truly the Roman Catholic Church until the great schism of 1023 because over those next hundreds of years, the Orthodox are trying to work it through with the different popes saying, we're not agreeing with you, but there's no reason to split. We need to stick together, etc." Then Islam comes around and then everybody's in a lot of trouble in those areas and they're trying to band together. So so it wasn't like around 1023 where they finally, and just make sure that's the, the year of the Great Schism, 1054, I don't know where I get 1023 from, but just double check, please. Uh, you just see this as that being the split where it's now you guys are not where we're supposed to be anymore. So by that definition, the Greek Orthodox would say we were technically the first, and then that's when we had to split away from them. Why I, I say that because it doesn't happen overnight. Compromise does not happen overnight. 1054, thank you. Just look at what happened at 10, in 1023, just if there's anything. Just see if there's any, Otherwise, I'm just making up numbers up here. So can that happen to us? Absolutely. You look back now on Pentecostal churches and the things that they developed and the churches that even I was a part of, they became powerless by those traditions because over time they became bound by them. And so they were of no earthly good. They were of no earthly good anymore. And I think about uh, this church over here, uh, Good Shepherd Assembly of God, that put their building up for sale and got it bought by a mosque, and now it's an Islamic center. Well, you know what? They got exactly what they wanted in the end, and that was money. I still to this day don't even understand why, why churches sell their churches. I, I don't even get it. 
Why are you selling your church? Well, we want to sell it so we can go somewhere else. Well, why not leave a ministry there? Why not give it to a ministry in the area? Why would you ever sell a church? Why should churches ever be sold? I just don't get it. I could tell you here, uh, I, could, I could keep here all day telling you at least three stories that I've been a part of were ministries. Uh, I came in, in contact with ministries, and they could have worked with me and helped start this church, which till to this day, we don't have our name on a deed, a, a property of our own, where we could say this belongs to us as a church, and none of those ministries are here today. And all of their buildings went in different directions. And it's just like, if you would have just given that, if you would have just humbled yourself, and I was talking about this in the youth meeting, and uh, your parents brought up another one. And that building got sold to developers. And, and they remember that people were trying to come there probably just like you guys, young college students, wanting to help and do the thing. But they got swindled out their money. They lost the building, all of those things. And that's judgment upon them. Did anything happen in 1023? Okay, so it's 1054. <laughs> Thank you for trying. So God forbid, God forbid, come on, God forbid that uh, we would ever go down this road. Do not be like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Don't be like either of them. Don't be like them. Be like Jesus and the apostles. Amen? So he basically throws this out there and says, hey, man, I'm on trial, guys, because he's a Pharisee, and he knows their inner debate. He's like, I'm on trial because I do believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in angels. I believe in all of that. And so now there's a great uproar because there's a division among them. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. They said, what if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. That's the Roman commander, be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Not really a jail. He's kind of going into the barracks where the soldiers would be at, where he would be safe. And so they say a spirit or an angel uh, but he's had neither of those really based on his testimony. He's had the resurrected Jesus who has flesh appear to him. Now, has he had uh, an um, angelic vision? Well, has he cast out spirits? Yes, he's done that. And has he had an angelic vision possibly, which an angel might have brought him to the third heavens, uh, as he said that he had when he was knocked out in Philippi, right? Wasn't that where he got stoned? I believe you guys, where was Paul stoned at? Yeah, Lystra and Derby. Let's just check on that. But not that I can recall that he ever, he's ever based his testimony on, nor has he had a spirit or an angel visit him. Right? Can anybody remember otherwise, Jared? Okay. But that's not necessarily their point. Um, to try to defend him on whether or not he saw the resurrected Lord. They're just saying, hey, we believe in spiritual things. We shouldn't have a problem with this. So once again, it doesn't mean they're saying the truth and how they're arguing like Gamaliel who said, let's just let it be. And if it's of God, it will last. And if it's not of God, we're fighting against God. No, that's not true. That's not how we argue. And this is not how we should defend Paul. We shouldn't say that. We should say, let's keep investigating on whether or not he met the resurrected Lord. Verse 11, that following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. It was Lystra. Okay, thank you. So now, was it God's will for him to go to Jerusalem? Yes. So to go back to Agabus's prophecy and the people trying to prevent him and him saying, why are you weeping? Why are you trying to break my heart? I must go here while you may die there, there or you're going to get bound up there and you may die. He said, I'm willing to die anywhere I go. Don't prevent me. Did he hear from God? Absolutely, because now the Lord appears to him. Doesn't correct him and say, you shouldn't be here. What are you doing here, son? i got to get you out of this mess. He says, I'm with you. Take courage. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So here is the promise of God. In any situation we find ourselves being persecuted in, take courage. God is with you. Amen. You may find yourself one day in that situation. I mean, we never know where life will bring us. Just think about that. 20, 30 years from now, you could be working in Indonesia. How old would you be 30 years from now? 56. 
So imagine you're a 56-year-old woman, I'm 80 years old, somewhere in a nursing home, whatever, or preaching, you know, being wheeled around by Jared, and you're 56, and at that point, you could be in a, uh, yeah, you're going to be the assistant Peter had, right? You're going to be the one who carries me, puts on my clothes for me. You're going to be that guy for me. Yes. And even places I don't want to go, you'll take me where I don't want to go. You'll be like, yeah, I know you don't want to go here, but I'm taking you here anyway. This is payback. This is payback, Pastor. So just imagine 30 years from now, we don't know, 30 years from now, you may be in an Indonesian jail for preaching the gospel. And at that point, I hope that you remember what God spoke to Paul. Take courage. I'm with you. You'll testify about me here. And uh, that's a true story about the people who were in jail during the time of the communist regimes with uh, Richard Warmbrandt. And he wrote in his book, Tortured for Christ, which is free online. You can get that. He said that they would threaten them and say, if we see you preaching, we'll beat you, we'll, we'll hurt you. And so that wouldn't stop them. They would preach anyways, and they would beat them. And then they would literally come back after their beating and say to the cell, where did I leave off? That's what Richard Warmbrandt said they would say. They would come back and say, brother, sisters, where did I leave off? And then he said that literally the title of one of the chapters is, They Love to Beat and We Love to Preach. So they would make an exchange, a beating for their preaching. Would you make that kind of exchange? Those are touching things to think about. I weep when I think of those things. Uh, that just brings tears to my eyes. It really does. Because I can only imagine somebody just getting beaten for preaching, and they come back in, and they look back at their brothers and sisters and say, Where have I left off? Praise God for them. Take courage. God is with you. Amen. The next morning, some Jews found, excuse me, formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had Paul killed. So you can just tell how much they hate him here. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. So this is really a big deal to them. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. But when the son of, okay, let me stop here. So now that Paul's about ready to hear about this, would it be right for him to call the high priest now a whitewashed tomb? Absolutely, because now he has shown himself to be wicked and double, uh, to be two-faced, that he would actually tell a lie to try to have him murdered innocently outside of the law of God which the law of God does not allow a man to be murdered like this without the witnesses of two or three. Blasphemy, it doesn't apply to Paul. He hasn't broken their laws, and they have no witnesses against him. So now this man's a whitewashed tomb. And those are the people, by the way, Jesus is speaking to. He's not just speaking to the average everyday Jew when he's calling them whitewashed tombs. He's talking to all of them, high priest all the way down, and he called them whitewashed tombs. And so Paul is not assuming that about this man because he doesn't have the intimate knowledge about him, the priesthood. Let's ask if Paul's high priest was the same as Jesus' high priest. Uh, could be. Or Paul didn't have the authority. Who knows? But now he would after this point. Jesus did. Paul didn't at that time. Paul would have now. Okay, so just kind of putting all that into context. Now we learn about the, uh, how, he, how Paul heard about this this plot in verse 16. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. So think about this. Paul's sister must be married to a man that's high up in the Jewish faith. How else would he have heard about it? So, you know, that's the best conclusion that we have. So just like Paul would have been in that meeting years before his conversion, his relatives are probably there. So that's something. That's just something to think about. Uh, was the relative willing to kill Paul? Was, was the brother-in-law willing to kill him? And the son just, the, the, you know, his, the, his uh, nephew heard it and was willing to stick up for him. Or was the brother-in-law a good guy and just trying to do his part in the, the midst of this to do what was right? Jesus was tried by Caiaphas. Paul by Ananias. So you see, two different situations, two different responses to them. Jesus had the authority because he knew who they were. Paul had to wait. 
if he was going to start calling these guys whitewashed tombs. Otherwise, he had to respect them in that setting. So just to kind of clarify that as we go. Now, verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions, and I just learned this recently. A centurion is somebody that's over a century of soldiers. A century is a 100. So that was kind of neat that I learned that. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. And a commander was over centurions, over uh, hundreds of soldiers. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and said, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get a detachment ready of 200 soldiers. So basically, each one of you guys gets your century and then bring extra people, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. So they're going to lead up quite a big party here to go to Caesarea at 9, at nine, nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. So now the governor over that land is Governor Felix over the Palestinian land or the, over Jerusalem and Judea. So he wrote a letter now to this governor, and he's going to say these things. What we see here is that there wasn't a lot of disorder in Rome, though there was a lot of immorality in Rome. They were very orderly in Rome. Once Paul said he was a Roman citizen, that was a line for them. Oh, whoa, we're not going to beat you now. We're not going to let that happen now. You're a Roman citizen. Order. Once they found out there was a plot against this man, order. You can't do that to this guy. He's a Roman citizen. And that's the reason why Rome was able to occupy the known world at that time and take over much of the land is because they were highly ordered. They were very structured. Were they moral? Not so much. But they were very ordered. I think what we learn from this is that God used the Roman order for the gospel's sake. The Roman roads was the best way for the gospel to get out at that time. The Roman leadership and the way it functioned was a way that the church could imitate in their churches and have order. They had saw it in their government, in other words. So cell group leaders could see themselves as, you know, the soldiers, the ones that were the elders over multiple small groups could see themselves as the centurions. The bishops or the overseers of a city could see themselves as the commanders. They understood that order, and the church understood how to follow order as well. And many of them were organized in similar ways. Maybe not, you know, just exactly the same. And maybe I'm stretching the comparison a little bit, but it's not too much to think because they lived in an organized culture, that order would become something normal to them. Whereas if you were dealing with people of another culture, like if you were dealing with the Goths or the people, the Nordic people that were known as barbarians, and uh, these would be the equivalent of the village people you would find in Central and South America or in Africa or in India and Asia, this would have been the white culture of the village kind, the Viking kind of people, if you want to put a, a, a people group to that. That's not where Christianity was birthed out of. Christianity was birthed out of a civilization that was able to organize the known world at that time and to conquer as they went one of the best. And they had that, that level of authority um, given to them because of their military wars, but then they also were very smart in architecture and, and, and scholastics and their schooling and all of those things. And so I just want to pause here to say, as we're pulling things out, there's nothing wrong with using the order of our government if it helps us to build churches to be successful. There's nothing wrong with using the good of the culture, just how Paul is using the good laws of Rome to supply him 
with safety, to give him safety and to give him the ability to keep on preaching. And that's actually how he's going to get to Rome. That's how he's, how is he going to get to Rome? He's going to appeal to Caesar. He's going to pull out the card that he gets as a Roman citizen because they're going to keep trying to follow him over to these, to the, to Felix's court and keep trying to bring him down. But eventually he's just going to say, send me to Caesar. And so by Caesar, he will go to get to preach in Rome. So basically, Rome is going to give him a free trip there. And that's where he sails on his ship. So provide him the horses. So they're actually providing him the horses to go to Governor Felix. And then this is the letter that Felix is supposed to have. Claudius Lysias. Now, why is it good to know the commander's name here is Claudius Lysias? Because Acts is a historical record. It's not fiction. These are real governors. These are real commanders. Why tell the commander's name? This is not fiction. Now, I've read, trust me, like you read, you, you read the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, they're going to name people, just like you're going to, you know, have a Marvel comic book, a, comic, a Marvel movie. There, there's people's names in there, and then they go to this city, Chicago, and some people may say, well, Joe, you can have all of that and still be myth. No, but not in this way. Luke is a historian of the first order. Luke is not just saying names and then talking about a bunch of fiction in those names. As a matter of fact, the only thing you would ever think is fiction in the entire book here is just the account of miracles. Nothing else is even fictional. Nothing else even appears to be fictional. There's not aliens coming from the sky to Chicago to Stark Enterprises that has the Mayor Brown over the city, whatever. You get what I'm saying? It's not like... There's like this, this humongous myth that overshadows these kind of details. No, it's actually the historical account overshadows the miracles. There's more historical details than there are miracles. And there's more, what we would say, martyrdoms and more arrests and more persecution than there are raising from the deads and cripples being healed. It, it, you know, sometimes they'll summarize and say, well, there was a lot of people healed or everybody with the shadow and all of that. But you also got to remember the whole entire city of Ephesus was in an uproar and they were being persecuted because of Christianity. So uh, just if you're taking the law of number, I mean, laws of numbers, that was probably a lot more being persecuted than they were being healed. And so the idea is the history is legit. And what it's supposed to do, this is what it's supposed to do, is say to us, if you can trust the history, you should trust the miracles because we don't have a reason to lie to you there. Does everybody get that? Just wanted to show you that. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews. And now here's the recap. And it's good for us to know. This man was seized by the Jews. They were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. And for I learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know what they were accusing him, what they were accusing him of. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that he... His, I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, and that's what we just heard about today, about the Sanhedrin. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So there you see the order. He's not going to let the Jews have their way. You just can't go around killing a Roman citizen. Now, could you have killed a Jew on your own, probably get away with it? Yes, you could probably get away with it if it was an insignificant Jew and you were handling it according to your law, maybe a big deal like blasphemy, yes. Could you do it with somebody like Jesus? No, Jesus had way too many followers, so they had to bring him to Rome. But could you do it with somebody like Philip? Uh, Stephen, rather. Yes, they got away with it with Stephen. And, and, and it sounds like from Paul that there were other deaths that happened under his hand, you know, as they put the coats before his feet. So uh, they could get away with kind of killing just the average TJ, as it were. But you couldn't just go around killing, uh, you know, Jensen Franklin. You just couldn't go around killing a, a big-name preacher. And I don't mean that offensively because he's an awesome preacher, right? But he, you could just kill him, not think much of it. And the same thing was with Paul. If Paul wasn't a Roman citizen, he probably could have died just like Philip. He could have, I keep saying Philip, but Steve, he could have probably just got stoned. But thankfully, it was stopped by the Romans. So the soldiers carrying out their orders, see, order there, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. 
The next day, Antipatris, yes. The next day they left the Cal- they let the Calvary go on with him. They let the Calvary go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the Calvary arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the, delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what prov- provenance he was from, learning that he was from Cecilia, Cecilia, Cilicia. <laughs> he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that he be kept under guard in, Parrot, in, in Herod's palace. Now I can't pronounce anything. So that's how chapter 23 ends. Let's look at Paul's journey here now as a prisoner. He uh, is in Jerusalem. Then he goes to Caesarea. And then that's now where he's at until he goes over here uh, and starts sailing towards Rome. Let's just make sure I am right. He is in Caesarea, correct? This is one more time. Make sure, yes, when he arrived at Caesarea. So, yes, he is in Caesarea. And then from Caesarea, he's going to take that long boat ride all, all up around in here to get to Rome way over there, and he's going to get shipwrecked. And so we'll hear more about that. And the book of Acts ends with him on house arrest in Rome. Just give you a little extra of what to look forward to if you haven't read to the end of the book yet. And so now we are at the Caesarean imprisonment right around 57 A.D. when he first gets there here in chapter 23. But he will be there till chapter 26, which is for about two years. And then, uh, like I said, he gets brought over here to Rome right around uh, 59. At the end of that year, he's there in Rome. And then he stands, uh, he goes there, but he gets released. And here's that missionary journey that some people believe he did. And then he gets imprisoned again under Nero and then gets killed. I'm going to study more about that fourth missionary journey as I get there and give you my opinion on whether or not I believe it. We'll see because that's kind of something that's always been up in the air was that official, and I'll get to you guys on that. What we want to remember as we come to the end of this chapter is that Romans 8.28, written by Paul, tells us, remember, he's going to Rome, and so this is a letter to the Romans, and let me just show you up here, I believe the letter of Romans comes before he goes to Rome. Yes, 57, he writes it, from a centuria or Corinth, so right uh, around this time, he gives uh, he gives this letter to Rome. So he hasn't even been there yet, and he's soon to come there. And so uh, what we see Paul's writing literally around this time is, and we know, come on, somebody say, I know. Amen. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to to his purpose. Paul said at the beginning of the chapter, I am living out my calling. I am fulfilling my duty. My conscience is good. And so it didn't matter the circumstances that he was facing. It never changed his identity. He was a called child of God. And everything he he went through was working for God's good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Though it doesn't have all the fireworks of previous chapters, may we see this as the pray, plug away, the preach, pray, plug away, plotting that Christians have to do at times. That we pray, we preach, and we plug away. We plot away no matter what happens. And we stay true to our calling, O Lord. And even if we suffer persecution, we We are not alone. We should not be discouraged. May we know that you are present with us as you were with Paul and that you give us courage. And may we do that in all that we do. Uh, May we have your courage in all that we do, even in times when we're not persecuted, like going to school and getting good grades. May we have the courage and the confidence to be all that you've called us to be, whether by life or by death, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.